And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, and some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, used without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the units gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishkiel he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king? Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Ezariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine that they were to drink, and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of time, when the king had, command, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, None was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Well, good morning, everyone. If you're visiting, it's a great joy to have you here with us. Nath, thanks for reading that passage out for us. I'm going to pray. Um, I'm going to pray for us. Let me pray. Father God, we want to thank you for your word. We ask now that your spirit will make it come alive into our hearts this morning. Would you please drown out the noise? May we hear what you're saying to us, both individually, but also as a church. And Jesus, we ask that your name will be glorified. In your name, amen.
Well, if you've been uh, traveling along with us at Canterbury Gardens through the sermon series, we've been looking at the uh, life of resolve. And last three weeks, Andy did a stellar job looking at the life of Joseph. If you've missed it, I would encourage you to go ahead to our website, download the talks and listen to it again. If you've already listened to it, I encourage you again, listen again. It's a a wonderful thing to be reminded of what God's been teaching in our church. And it's been great hearing the conversations and talking to people and hearing what God's been teaching everyone. This week, I met with a young fellow from our church. Uh, He's just started a new job, and he's a young guy in a corporate world, in a corporate setting. And he had a a meeting with uh, his leadership team. So these are supervisors of his. And as he sat there uh, in the leadership team, they talked about the things that they need to do with work. And uh, these are men much senior to him. And at one point, one of the guys decided to change the conversation about the different sizes of breasts in women and which breasts they prefer. Now, what would you do if you were this young man? This Christian young man who loves Jesus, sitting in a room who are men who don't know Jesus. And in that conversation, they start talking about women in a very derogatory, bad, terrible way. Not just because they're not Christian, this not should be talked in any way that way. What would you do? Now, this gentleman, we were talking through with that. And we're talking about what would be our response. And we actually read Daniel 1 together. Over the next three weeks, we're going to be looking uh, through uh, some highlights in the book of Daniel. Particularly looking at Daniel and his mates over the next three weeks. Uh, As I've been sort of chewing over this book, I've been really personally challenged by Daniel's example, but also the story of Daniel as a whole. It's only 12 chapters long. If you have never, ever read Daniel, I'd encourage you to take the time. If you're not into reading, you probably have a Bible app on your phone and you can actually listen to it while you're on your way to work or school, wherever it is. It's beautifully rich. Because in this book, there's a lot of things. There's things about uh, living in a, in a culture that is totally against God. Uh, there's also that uh, lesson about prayer. Uh, there's also about showing this underlying theme that's constantly through the book of Daniel. That in the midst of a mighty king or two kings, usually there are two kings in the story of Daniel, there's a much more mightier and awesome God in the background working things out for his glory. And also points towards Jesus. Actually, Jesus even talks about Daniel in the Gospel of Matthew. So Daniel is a significant book because Daniel also talks about the the resurrection life, what happens when you die, and he talks about it. This is an Old Testament passage. So this book is not just an Old Testament book. It is a significant book. And I would encourage you, if you've never read Daniel, to spend some time over the next few weeks just to read and chew over this book. Now, I want to lay a bit of a foundation for us. Uh, this book was written for a particular people for a particular time, and I want to lay that foundation for us this morning. It's actually part of a bigger story. Andy talked about this when he talked about the life of Joseph. It actually is a story that is much more than about specific people. It's actually the story about God and his relationship with mankind. And in particular, in the Old Testament, and his relationship with a group or a group of people, or a nation, the nation of Israel. And this is to show you, not to bore you with history and facts, it's actually to let you know this is actually a true story. These aren't just made-up little fables. This is a true account. These things actually really happened. These kings actually existed. So I want to introduce you to Daniel. 
the first few verses Nathan read to us, it gives a picture of what's going on. We get an idea of what is uh, about to take place or what's actually taken in place. See, uh, what was going on, um, a nation of Israel, they uh, had kings and they had a bunch of kings who were meant to rule over this nation, but they were also to stand as a nation separate from any other nation that surrounded them, particularly the enemies, because they worshipped God. And often you read the stories about these particular kings, not all of them were good, actually most of them weren't any good. And what happened was a nation, and particularly through a king, resolved to walk away from their relationship with God. And so God did what he said he would do. He resolved in his heart to let something happen. That was to have the enemies, the Babylonian Empire, to come and take over Israel as a nation because they were called to be a holy nation, set apart for that time. They were God's people. They had a unique relationship. Israel has a unique relationship with God. In that, um, it's pro- you can read about that kind of relationship that they're meant to have. It's, it's in a really popular book. I'm sure most of you have read it. It's, it's, it's on the top list of books to read in the book of the Bibles. It's called the book of Leviticus. I know many of you have read it and spent a lot of time in it, I'm sure. But I would encourage you to take time to read through it because you get to see the, re- the wonderful reality of God's holiness and what he expects of his people. Actually, in uh, Leviticus chapter 26, there's sort of a summary of what that was all about. Uh, There's this language called covenant. Covenant is much more than just an agreement. It's actually a partnership. Uh, What it was all based on was that God said, listen, uh, I will love you as my people. You're my people. I will love you. I will provide for you. I will take care of you and blessings will flow. Here are the parameters. Here are the things that you need to follow to have a relationship with me. But if you broke those terms, if you uh, sinned against me, things will go really bad for you. There was a disfavor. There was a judgment, a righteous judgment from God. And, and the thing was, God didn't just go smack, smack down on the people of Israel all the time. He would give them time to relent. He would call them back. But if they didn't turn back, he actually warned them and said, if you do not turn back, I'm going to scatter you among the nations. And this is what's going to happen. This is what we're reading about. You can actually read about it in the story of a, a king called Hezekiah. It's, it's come into being. His foolishness has led into this happening. This is the prophecy that God said it was going to happen has come into fruition. And so that's where we pick up the story. Daniel and his mates are probably young guys, most probably teenagers, are captured. They're taken as exiles, in political prisoners, in many ways like slaves. They're removed from their homes, their families, their way of life, what they have known. They're brought into another culture, and a culture that is totally against anything that God stands for. And how do we know this? Well, you can actually read it in verse 2. You see, from verse 2, the conquering king comes in. He besieges the city. And part of the conquering uh, routine was to take the spoils of war. But he heads to the vessels. These are ceremonial tools to worship God. That was set apart for God's worship. And this king takes it and takes it back to his God, to his temple. For those who are hearing this story for the first time, particularly in Israel, it would have been like saying, Yahweh, the creator of the universe, has been defeated. and Now he has been taken as prisoner to this other God. But we know as we read Daniel, who's actually in charge? 
who's actually in control. Unbeknownst to the king, and you'll see the story of the two, there are two major kings that come in the book of Daniel. And when you read that, you see they assume that they're in charge, they're all in control. But throughout the book of Daniel, there's this wonderful reality. God's showing that he is still in charge. He is still involved. And this king doesn't realize in this chapter that we just read that God is in charge. God is the one who permitted this to happen. And you know, friends, I don't know if you realize this. Many of our friends are like this king. Many of our friends who don't know God are like this king in that they think they're in charge. They think they're in control. They think they have their destiny in their hands. God is the one who's in control. So this king comes in, takes control, and he takes prisoners with him. Part of the strategy of that nation was either you can annihilate a nation and completely destroy it on the face of the earth, or you can gather further ground by grabbing particular people. This is the, the cream of the crop. These are the nobilities. These are kings, and these are uh, um, family members of the royal, uh, royal family. They were taken as prisoners. In that way, they can create sort of this other group of people who are taught this new culture, new language, new way of life, new worship of a different gods, and then bring them back to this other nation. And the idea is to kind of totally destroy a nation from within, to drown out what this nation is about, their identity, to change their identity completely, introduce them to a new language and culture and literature. Not only that, in this story, they got, went to the straight to not only changing uh, everything about them, what they knew, but also to change them in their names. So Daniel, in the Hebrew word, it means God is my judge. Hananiah, the Lord is gracious. Mishael, who is what God is. Azariah, the Lord is a helper. And you know what? What I love about those names, it's almost like those names display the story of Daniel. Because God is the one who judges the nation of Israel and hands them over. Yet he's gracious not to completely annihilate them. And he still achieves his purpose through this season in Israel's history. And God is the one who shows himself true. And you read the story of Daniel. God is the one who continuously shows himself true. And God is the one who is the helper in Daniel's life and his friend's life. And what happens is that these men who are Hebrew men who have names that mean that they worship God ultimately, that their names are changed. They're given uh, Babylonian names. They're given names that actually are Babylonian gods. Their names are completely changed. Their identities are changed. The gods of Marduk and Bel and Nebo are related to these new names that they're given. And slowly the whole idea of this reprogramming it's like a spiritual reprogramming that's going on excuse me daniel and his friends had a challenge because they were going to completely reprogram them spiritually it's to change their thoughts and their minds to forget about the god that they worship the god that they belong to and it's very subtle it's very subtle. Friends, I don't know if you realize this. If you are a follower of God, 
in many ways, we're like Daniel and his friends, that we are actually in exile. We're actually in exile. This is not our home. If you belong to God and you're a God worshiper, you worship Jesus Christ, this is not your home. We belong in heaven. And in our many ways, we are exiles. In, in, in that reality, all of us are under the same pressure. There are subtle things that start creeping into our lives that start changing our identity and who we really belong to. And they slowly drown out the voice that really matters. That's the voice of God. The voice of the king of the universe. These are subtle things. Many years ago, um, I used to smoke cigarettes, just to clarify what I'm talking about. And as a smoker, you, you start with this idea of that you're just going to be a social smoker. I don't know if you, I don't know, I don't know who smoked here, but anyway, when I used to smoke, a social smoker. A social smoker was someone you just when you hung out with friends, socializing. So when you go out for dinner or when you go to parties. Now, I don't know if you realize cigarettes are addictive. That's what those signs say, and that's true. And over time, social smoker becomes addicted smoker. But it's subtle. You start all, you know, it's just a bit of fun. It's okay. It's just a cigarette. It's harmless. But over time, you become addicted to it. Now, I'm not, I'm not sure if there are those who are struggling through quitting smoking, but one of the things I want to ask is whether if it's that or anything else in life, are there things in your life right now that are very subtle, subtle voices, subtle things that are really trying to question your identity and who you are in God? Now, in this sermon, I want to hopefully, uh, my prayer is to achieve something. And that is, when we look through this um, storyline, when we hear about Daniel and his mates, and we hear about how they stood for God, one of the things is going to happen. There's a default mode in all of us. And the default mode is this. Right, okay, I need to be like Daniel, so I'm going to cut off all that's bad. So I'm going to have no mobile phone, I'm not going to have no TV, I'm going to have no radio, except for even I can listen to 3AW or Christian radio station. I'm going to sell everything. I'm going to head off to Aldi or Costco and stock up and head to the hills, live in a shed till Jesus comes back. That's the way how I'm going to stay holy. For some of us, we might even say, well, Shabu, it's not really that bad. You know, come on, take it easy. I'm under grace. I'm not hurting anyone. No matter where you're at, the whole point of Daniel is that yes, We're all like exiles living in this world. And there are going to be constant things that are going to call us and pull us away. But we are called to live in this world for this season, for this time. Daniel and his friends, as kids, are taken as prisoners. And they are going to be taught. They're going to be taught new things, new ways. But one thing is very clear from the word go of Daniel's life. I think Daniel knew who he was. Yes, he was a Jew, but he was also a worshipper of God. He was a God worshipper. And this is shown by what he uh, was more priority to him, and that is where he did his faithful diet. His faithful diet was committed to his relationship with God. Now, when Daniel had a diet, it's not talking about the no-sugar diet or paleo or organic or whatever things popular at the moment. 
And it's very dangerous to fall into that trap because I, even this past couple of weeks, I was trying to find some books on Daniel and I came past a thing called the Daniel Diet. I don't know if you've ever done that. But there's a book called the Daniel Diet based on this whole passage. I think they missed the point in my opinion. Because at the heart of it, that's not what it's talking about. See, Daniel and his mates are grabbed, they're taken, they're taken as prisoners, and they're about to be educated in the Royal University of King Neb. As over the three-year course, they're about to be educated. They're going to not only be educated, they're actually going to be fed. They're not just going to be fed. I'm talking about Michelin star restaurant quality food. This is good meat, good wine. This is not about university-type food if you've ever been to a university cafeteria. It's not talking about potato cakes or chips. This is the really good stuff. So in many ways, when we look at it, it's very easy to say, what's the big deal? It's just some wine and some meat. What's the big deal? Now, a couple of things. One, is it because of his Jewish descent that he had particular uh, food laws that he had to keep and so that was the reason why? Or is it because also the reality that most of the time in that culture that the king's food was first offered to the idols of the time as worship, offerings to the idol, then the king would eat it? Or maybe on the way to uh, his exile, Daniel reads a Facebook status about how vegetables is the new way of detox. But you find later on in Daniel, actually, Daniel actually eats the meat and the wine. It's in Daniel chapter 10 where he falls down, has a prayer and fast, and he stops eating meat and wine and drinking wine. See, I think at the end of the day, Daniel is looking at the situation and there's something much deeper. There's something much deeper. So Daniel knew that if he ate this food, it will actually affect his relationship with God. It will actually affect his relationship with God. It was not just about the food and the diet. Because in verse 8, it says he had resolved or he had made a decision in his heart, I'm not going there. I'm not going there. Now, remember how I said to you uh, earlier, there's some of us who are default mode is to be uh, two groups of people. The, the one group is to head to the hills and eventually those heads to the hill people are driven by fear and ultimately leads to overwhelming legalism. For some of us who are the part two, which is where you want to just be part of the culture. But part of the culture as a Christian, and also in many ways there's a heart reality that we want to be accepted by the culture. But in these verses, we are shown what needs to be driving our hearts. We need to be asking a question almost. If I engage in this, if I become part of this, if I say yes to this, how will it affect my relationship with God? Will it defile my relationship? Will it break my relationship? Will it cause me to sin? And you know what? That is actually quite freeing if you don't realize that. You know why it's freeing? It's based on a relationship. It's based on a relationship. It's not based on religion or or irreligion. It's based on a relationship. See, Daniel's relationship with God drives him to say no, but in saying no, he's actually putting his life at risk. Not only the life of him and also his mates. Now, I don't hear his mates saying, well, I'm not involved in this. 
Even his mates, all of them are at risk. Daniel knows what's far more important to him. But I think also Daniel has a hunch. Daniel knows who is in control of all of this. In verse 2 of chapter 1, it says, And the Lord. In verse 9 of chapter 1, it says, And God. And verse 17 says, And God gave them. God is in control. God is constantly in this storyline. And God is shaping all of this for his greater and bigger purpose. I think Daniel knew this. in, And you see that unraveled in the story of Daniel. But I think also not his, not just Daniel, but his friends also realize it. And you see that in their lives. We'll be talking about that next week. Because in this story, there's actually two audiences. There's the audience about Israel as a nation. They're listening to this reality. Well, how do we live as God's people, as captured people in this land? It's to show you can by putting God and his desires first. But it also shows to us, what can we do in 2015 to live as a people in this world? Because it's not driven out of legalism, it's actually driven out of relationship with God. So in light of that, Daniel says, right, so his, uh, the eunuch, the guy who's in charge of him, his supervisor says, fine, I'm going to test you out over 10 days. And he feeds them just vegetables and water. Just vegetables and water. I'm thankful for the men's ministry. <laughs> because I've got to be honest with you, that would have been intense. I don't know if you've ever done anything like that. If you have, good on you. But that would have been intense for 10 days, just water and vegetables. I don't think I would have ever lasted for that long. But the point is that as they, as Daniel and his friends resolve in their hearts to say yes to God and no to the culture they live in, God shows favor to them. It says that they actually come in better appearance. And that the language is there is actually they turn out to be really good looking. When you look at them, they look great. And it has to be a God thing. Over 10 days, eating just vegetables and water, and they look good, it has to be a miracle. It actually says they looked plump. They looked healthy. And that is, has to be God's thing. And I'm not joking. It's the whole point of that is to say God's involved in it. God's the one doing this. Because they put God first. They put God first. See, that actually sets the whole theme for the all of Daniel. See, God hands Israel over. Daniel and his mates resolve in their hearts to live for God in this foreign land. In a very non-God world. And God bestows on them favor and wisdom to the point that they are favored over all the other magicians and the soothsayers and people who worship demons and idols. They are far more wiser than any of those men. See, Daniel actually shows us, friends, in 2015 that we can actually live for God in this world under God's loving authority, particularly in a world that is so against God. Even today in 2015. Now here is what people like me will say to you at this point. And I'll, the reason why I'm trying to drive in this, I hopefully make clear later on, which is ultimately I'll say to you, go now, go this week, live like Daniel. In one sense, there's nothing wrong with that. You should. You should look at some of these stories and learn from that and see how we can apply that to our life. But here is my hunch, and I could be wrong about this. 
When I say to you, go live like this, some of us will do this. Some of us will go, right, okay, here's my list of things that I'm not allowed to do. In some sense, we'll sort of create this massive list of rules and regulations. They might have started with good intention, but eventually they become some sort of legalistic list that it makes you almost like you're holier than everyone else. But at the end of the day, we can't really keep it because there's a deeper issue. I remember growing up in a church where uh, these days it's quite normal and I'll be totally fine with that if you're someone who does that. You would never wear a hat to church, let alone wear a singlet to church, particularly if you're a guy. That was never heard of. Even shorts. You would never ever do that. Now, some of those things started with good intention, but over time it turns into this list of things, of creating this sort of super holiness and thinking that's what makes you holy. But at the end of the day, you keep those lists, you're going to end up falling apart. I'm going to end up falling apart. It has to begin with the resolution. That resolution is to begin with this question, who is in charge of my life? Because that is what's going on in Daniel's heart. Because friends, I know friends of mine, good friends of mine, who don't smoke, they don't swear, they're actually married and they have kids and they've never slept around, they're actually quite generous with their money, but they do not know God. They don't have a relationship with God. I know friends of mine who are involved, not in this church, but who are involved in ministry, who are well-versed with their Bible and they love quoting Bible verses a lot of the times and they say how they don't drink, they don't smoke, they don't do drugs, but they're far from God in their relationship with God because they don't really know Him. I know friends of mine who uh, don't go to this church, but friends of mine who, who, who <laughs> I'm going to make sure I say that, uh, friends who go to church are involved in church on Sunday. They're all about Jesus on Sunday. But Monday to Saturday, we don't know if they're a Christian. They have a boyfriend or a girlfriend and they're not having sex with them, but they're doing everything else. They're involved in business and they're happy to take a bit of a cash job. It's only cash. It doesn't matter. I don't need to account for that. They're happy to lie on the income tax return. The government doesn't need my money. Because these groups of people, it's very easy for all of us to make some sort of rules and regulations and we need to start somewhere, I get that. But ultimately, there's something deeper going on. They forget that there's a need that needs to be filled. See, what Daniel did was he began by stepping back and he said he resolved in his heart not to eat the food because what mattered to him was not about the food. What mattered to him was his relationship with God because he knew if he did this, it will affect his relationship with God. That mattered most because at the end of the day, I don't know if you've realized this, God is actually after your heart. He wants all of your heart, not just your actions. God is after your heart. One of the beautiful stories of uh, who Jesus is and what he did was he came into this world. He came and lived amongst us. I love using the term that Jesus is like a missionary coming into this world. He learns our language, wears our clothes, eats our food, according to what he was required of in that culture, in that time. And Jesus was always one who would always uh, get into these big sort of debates. They were always the religious guys, uh, the, the teachers of the law, 
It was probably people like me, a pastor, standing there going, you can't do that. And this is one story in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 15. Jesus is there and uh, what's happened is that uh, the context is that um, people are eating and they haven't washed their hands. It was part of the ceremonial thing. You had to wash your hand a particular way. And Jesus turns around to them and he makes it very clear to them. Listen, in verse 17 it says, Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes in the stomach and is expelled? What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Friends, Jesus comes into this world and he says, Listen, it's not the food that will defile you. It is your heart that is the problem. Your heart is the problem. It's not your food that makes you unclean. It's your heart that makes you unclean. Your heart, my heart, corrupted. And this is what happens with moral lists. This is what happened in Jesus' day. They made a bunch of lists. Not only did they make the list that was already in the Bible, they added to it to be extra sure. (coughs) And in many ways, we do that in different forms. There are also those of us who ignore all the commands that Jesus says to live like We are expected to live under God's loving authority, his representatives, to be holy people. And we ignore that and say, well, I'll just be part of the culture. But the question is to always to come back to the heart. See, I think Daniel and his mates resolved in their heart that they belonged to God, not to the world that they were exiles in. And in light of that, they chose to live a life to ultimately please the one that it mattered to, the king of the universe, God. And friends, we have a wonderful Savior who's the greater Daniel who comes into this world. He identifies us with, him, with us that he's man, but he's God. He comes into the storyline because, see, Daniel's storyline is wonderful, massive. And as you read Daniel, there's this reality of, well, how is this all going to work out? Who's going to come? And the storyline of Daniel continues and it's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. And Jesus comes and the promise of Jesus returning again. It's to show on this side of the cross, we have a Savior who came into this world, lived a holy life on our behalf because we're all in trouble when we think about our hearts. Jesus is the only one who could do it. You know what this means? This means that if, you're un, if you know Jesus and you belong to him, you're under his loving authority. So what it needs to begin with first is asking the question in your heart and resolving in your heart, I live for Jesus in this world. The other thing is you might be those who have never heard of Jesus. Maybe you've heard about him a few times, but you've never really thought about the idea that your heart needs cleaning. Jesus offers that to you. You can stop trying to do this on your own. He wants to clean your heart, and he did that by going to the cross. He took your place, my place, and paid the price. See, Jesus' heart was ultimately do the Father's will. And he came and lived in this perfect world without blemish. He ate the food. He hung out with the wrong crowd. He got into trouble all the time. But he was always salt and light. Always. It says he never sinned. He did everything perfectly. But this is the wonderful reality of our Savior. He became defiled. 
that you and I could be his children. And on that cross, he became sin. And that means for those of us who know Jesus, you need to see yourselves as exiles living in this world. This means in many ways you've been called to live in a foreign land. People are far from God and you are now called to be representations of our Savior in this world, wherever God has placed you. But understand this. You cannot do this on your own. This is the wonderful reality of Christ and his resurrection. He sends his Holy Spirit to empower us to live the life that he's called us to live. So what could this look like? Well, some things I want to leave here with you. Do you know Jesus? That's the first thing. Because if you don't know Jesus, if you don't have a relationship with God, your default mode will be to create a moral list of rules. So do you know Jesus? If you don't know Jesus, can I encourage you? Maybe you came with someone this morning who brought you along. Ask them, what was he talking about? How do I start a relationship with Jesus? Or come and chat to one of us pastors. Number two, if you're working, does your work ethic or the way you run your business reflect to others that you are a follower of Jesus? If it doesn't, maybe this week you need to take some time out and pray, Lord, this is your business. I'm working for you. In light of that, help me to be your servant in this place. Maybe if you're studying, does the way that you study in your relationship with your classmates reflect the way, reflect that you are a follower of Jesus? Or don't they really know? Maybe we need to consider to resolve in your heart to live for him and study for him. Or this week, as we look on our Facebook status, on our Instagram, on our Twitter or Snapchat or whatever else we use, does your up, those um, profiles, those updates, those things... Do they reflect that you are a follower of Jesus in what you say, in what you like, in what you watch, in what you share? Do they reflect that you're a follower of Jesus first? So before you update your status, take 10 seconds to pray and resolve in your heart to reflect Jesus. And the fifth one, and this is something I'm sort of sharing personally for me, I've been quite strikingly challenged as I've been wrestling through the book of Daniel. And I've been reflecting on my son, particularly as he's three years old, and um, he's sort of getting to that age when he's understanding more and more, and even Lucy, my daughter. One of the things I always think about and pretend and have conversations with in my head, if you know, what if this happened? One of the conversations I had in my head recently was, if I said to my kid and said, hey, Elisha, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? And if he turns around to me and he says, well, Daddy, it means that I go to church on Sunday, uh, that I don't do bad things, and that I don't um, play with bad people, and I'm not like our neighbor over there. Now, if my son says that, I need to get on my knees and cry for mercy to God. Because if that's what my son has seen, that somehow that following God means a bunch of rules, all I'm going to train him to be is to become a legalist. So I need to cry out. So parents, this week, as you hang out with your kids, ask them in their own way, well, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Hear what they're saying. Watch what they're doing. 
and pray to God that God would capture their hearts to live in a world of grace, to resolve to live for him. We invite the team to come up. They're going to sing a song for us and use the song to worship our God, to reflect on his goodness. And then I'll come back out and pray for us.